Before kids, mm, sort of, sort of. Like yeah. I, I don't doubt its existence, but I, used, I don't really remember yeah. it. I used to have this like ritual, I would call it, on Sunday nights before we started our work week, and I was often, and some of that time I was like in um, culinary school and working, so I kind of took Sunday nights as my time to just kind of set up for the week, and I would soak in the bath and do my toenails and do my nails and facial and hair mask and stuff because we lived in some dry climate so I would do a hair mask or scalp treatment. Really? Yeah. And it would probably be like a two-hour process, you know, trimming and plucking my eyebrows and all that good stuff that, you know, that ladies do. You'd think I'd remember that. Yeah. What was I doing while that was happening? I don't know. Hmm. I think it was a time before like... We had kids, and I just didn't pay that much attention to the needs of others, and so I just kind of did my own thing, and I, I mean, I, we did it after dinner, I remember, because I liked going to bed feeling like that clean and relaxed, and usually have some essential oils or bubble bath that, you know, made me drowsy with lavender, and... That's a great thing. Yeah. I miss those times. Well, you should... Get back to that. That's good stuff. Well, I've tried over the years, and a lot of times I think that morphed into, like, after the kids were in bed, and we owned a bakery for many years, so you were already going to bed early. Right. But you kind of developed this need of, like, wanting to know where everything was in place as your drinking continued. So, like, me taking a bath... And relaxing on Sunday night after all the chores were done and the kids were to bed. You wanted me to be lying there next with you, next to you. Even yeah. though I maybe wasn't ready to go to sleep because I didn't have to wake up at 3.30 like you did. Well, even now, now that I don't get up as early, I still can't sleep unless you're like there and the doors are locked and the kids are, you know, yeah. tucked away for the evening. So I still yeah. struggle to yeah to sleep until everything is in its place. Yeah, I mean, because, that's on me, I know, yeah. but I don't feel terrible about that. That's just yeah. how I am. Well, and I think it just, it's kind of added to my, like, lack of that luxury and that, you know, pampering of self-care. I Which mean, is, I still found time to exercise Yeah. Um, for a lot of times, like, because mm-hmm. we had a family membership at a Y and the kids were doing fun activities if they weren't in school full-time or, you know, or part-time so I still found ways to like self-care, but that relaxing and luxury. And also Sunday nights kind of turned into like one of the worst nights of the the week for us. Because you always had yeah. the Sunday blues. Yeah, I had the Sunday blues that I would drink through and just make them much worse. Yeah. And uh, either sulk and pout or get angry or whatever. Whatever was happening earlier on Sunday that I was enjoying and you know, toasting and celebrating to would turn into some form of awful on Sunday nights. So that's why it's hard for me to remember. It's not hard for me. I don't remember a time when Sunday nights were good for you. Yeah. We should kind of make an effort to try to get back to that in some form, maybe Sunday afternoons. Yeah. 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 Because you would, you, 
you did it when we didn't have kids, and then once we had kids, you wouldn't feel comfortable doing anything like that till after they were in bed. Yeah. But now yeah. they're older. They don't need you Sunday afternoons. Right. They're doing I mean, their own thing. I still get a luxurious bath every once in a while and have time yeah, for soaking Once and every reading. six months is not oh. once in a while. Okay, well, let's just say I do shower regularly. Well, I know you shower. Actually, it's not the when same it was thing. cold at the beginning of the week, I did take a couple of, of baths. Because I have a book from the library that needs to be turned back in and I wanted to read it. Because it's my only reading time. But that's interesting that but you have to come up with like an excuse a for a reason to take a bath. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's just as we become like in a, in a relationship that has alcohol or an addiction... And then you have kids piled on top of it. Like, you know, it totally is developing your codependency and your lack of, and putting you last that just kind of develops and transforms and is almost inevitable. Yeah. For the loved one of the alcoholic to put themselves last is, I think that's universal. Whether they're kids or not, you know, if they're kids, certainly they're putting themselves behind their kids and behind their spouse and behind their job and behind every other demand on their life. And it's something that I didn't, I didn't understand. Did you understand all this, you know, when we were kind of in the throes of it or is this stuff that you've learned since? Well, I think that I understood that I would always put my children before myself. Like that was never a question. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's Um, bad. Yeah. I mean, but even to the point of like something small, like, oh, it's not the perfect blueberry of the whole plate of blueberries. So I'm going to give that to my three-year-old that doesn't even care what the blueberry looks like as long as it tastes okay. Like, I would take that terrible blueberry. Your sister did that once. And I was just like, what? Like, why would you give them the wrinkled blueberry? Like, I didn't say it out loud, but in my head. Like, oh, so you I would give, give them, like, the perfect, the perfect and thing. You would I, eat the... And I would eat the crappier thing. The one that eh, had the bruise on it or the banana that was a little more bruised up. You know, that sort of stuff. So, like, I went to those extreme lengths, you know. Yeah. I think maybe just to, maybe it was like a cover, too. Covering up, like, the uncomfortable situation of your alcoholism. Could be. That's very interesting. You know, so the other side of this is when I was drinking, I could sit there all day on Sunday and watch football. Or if it wasn't football season, I'd watch whatever sport was on. And and then when the sports were done for the day, I'd watch some stupid news program or something. But I could sit there all day and feel absolutely no guilt while I just drank beer after beer after beer and zoned out. And I just, I don't know. I don't know if that is a gender thing. Because you and I are firm, staunch, hardcore believers in equal rights and equal gender equality, all of that. But we also believe that there are hormonal and I guess genetic or whatever differences between men and women. And so I don't know if that is part of it or if that's purely the alcohol. But when you mix a man and alcohol, we are pretty commonly able to sit guilt-free in front of the television for long, long periods Mm -hmm. of time or on the golf course or, you know, whatever you're... or or in front of the smoker smoking ribs or whatever, whatever you're favorite hobby is Mm -hmm. we we are it's pretty easy for us to justify i work hard all day on the weekdays and when i get relaxing time i want to take it and i'm going to relax to the fullest yeah whereas 
you know, I know, I know of lots and lots of cases and that's, I mean, that was a great introduction, Cherry, because that's what we want to talk about today is guilt and shame. And part of that comes from this whole idea of taking care of yourself, which is a really, really important thing to do. In our Echoes of Recovery group, we've had lots of discussions lately. Our Echoes of Recovery group is for the loved ones of alcoholics, and we provide connection and just fellowship and shared learning, and it's a really, really kind of special place to heal and to to get better, regardless of what the drinker in your life is doing. Hopefully that person is in recovery, but if they're not, it's a great place for you to heal too. And you can find out more about us at echoesofrecovery.com, E-C-H-O-E-S of recovery.com. And so we, we've talked lately about this whole idea of self-care. And you know, self-care gets a bad rap. Some people on the internet will criticize people who are interested in self-care because they're like, oh, you just want to take a bubble bath or, I don't know, eat a fancy meal. It's it's not that. It's There's really psych, serious psychological benefits, uh, anxiety, depression, to taking time for yourself and doing the things that you need to nurture yourself. And that is kind of universally hard for the people that we talk to that are in recovery from the alcoholism of their loved one. So the the kind of terms that come up a lot are guilt, shame, anxiety, uncomfortable, uncomfortable, pressure. I, I remember one of the conversations we had was about somebody who was committed to taking that bath. They knew they deserved it. They needed it. But then they thought of all the things that they should be doing instead of the bath. So they only allowed themselves 15 minutes for the bath. Well, Which takes 15 minutes to fill the bathtub yeah. up, doesn't it? Yeah. Another eight minutes to drain it. Seems like seems like that's not enough time to be soaking. Uh, anger is another one. Anger at yourself. Anger at your situation. But these are all, you know, e- expressions of emotions that really, really, there's something that as a society as a whole, regardless of alcohol or not, but certainly within the alcohol recovery community, these are things that need to, this is something that needs to change. There should be no guilt felt for taking care of yourself, whether that's exercise or time alone to read, whether you're a parent or not, whether you're the spouse of an alcoholic or not, whether you're the parent of an alcoholic or not, or the child of an alcoholic or not, everyone needs time for themselves. And when life gets really busy, I mean, I know that's one thing that you and I have gotten terrible at, Sherry, as we've gotten busier and busier and the kids have gotten older and older, we've gotten to the point where every waking minute is occupied by some form of work, whether it's, you know, work, work or housework. There's just really, I mean, I I get excited to watch the news for the day while I'm doing the dishes after dinner like that that's my idea of relaxing something yeah. wrong with that and watching tv while i'm folding oh, yeah I, I love how you always work. say that i i get to relax i was just folding laundry well i'm just folding laundry and it's still work you know watching the show <clears throat> it might not be exhausting work but 
if we don't give our brains time to completely shut down and our bodies time to completely go into a different um what's the what's the word what did we learn with our breathing practices your your nervous system your nervous system needs to shifted gear to a different place where you're actually oh, relaxing and not yes. just always I thought of that word this morning at 5:30 when I couldn't go back to sleep but I was doing some were breathing. Were you doing some breathing? Yeah, I, I can't believe you didn't notice like but you were probably sleeping. I was sleeping. So good for you. But yeah, I was thinking I had that a good um, run of sleeping lately. Something system. Well, it's nervous. Yeah, it's Yeah, but there system. was like another term for There's like the, the sympathetic relax. and the parasympathetic nervous sympathetic, system. Sympathetic, right? System is what you want. Sympathetic is your your fight or flight. Your okay. on edge. So your parasympathetic, parasympathetic is, is when you're actually relaxing. That's yes. that's the state you should be in for digestion. But deep breaths, calm. Yeah. But that's just the entry level to what we really should be doing, mm-hmm. self care wise. Whether it's you returning to your bath and manicure routine and doing that. See, here's the key though. You got to do it guilt free. Yeah. That's the hard part for people. Well, and I've definitely gotten better about doing it guilt free because, you know, the kids are older and they help fold laundry and watch my Call the Midwife show. I mean, how are we going to teach boys about babies if they don't watch Call the Midwife? Yes. You yes. and your British like, <laughs> so, comedies. Not even com- comedies. Dramas, sorry. So just, yeah. Um, series. Um, yeah, so definitely You're any. A BBC-aholic. <laughs> I'm a PPC-aholic. Yes. <laughs> We're going to have to get you on a 12-step program for your BBC. It's my ancestry. I feel bonded. Oh, you're as British as my toenail. You're, I mean, you might... Your yeah, ancestry, I mean, Have you been to England lately? Like, No, I just... That's what I meant. Other than just, watching BBC, I said you have no relation. Those are my ancestors. So, um, no British redcoat jokes aside. But, you know, there is a different state. And, and I do find that I am less guilty when I do those things. So part um, of that has got to be because you don't have I'm, a tyrant alcoholic walking around the house going, Cherry, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, come in here and help me with this or, what? you know, get in bed. Why are you still up? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's got to be a, a huge portion of the reason that people feel guilty when they self-care because they've got a demanding half yeah, drunk yeah. asshole yeah you have tromping like, around you have your you know 35 year old toddler and then you might have your three and five year old toddler that's right so yeah and also just like i know now you are more a part of the upkeeping the housework like for a long time you are the dish guy like you take care of the dishes I all like the, the time. dishes i don't um, know why but i like the dishes so i know that that is off of my plate you know, so, like, I know that you're helpful. And if I were to say, hey, Matt, will you run the vacuum while I go take a bath? I don't think you would be totally mad. No. I mean, now, the teenage boys, they might be a little like, Ugh. But I'll still ask them. Yeah. In fact, you know, I haven't vacuumed a room in quite a while because I make them. So I'm feeling ways to dole out some of the chores because they're older. But there is... But it's not, the it's not just about and doling out carving out the time. It's not just about doling out the chores. It's about making the time a priority, even if the chores are still there and need to be done. Yeah, that's the part where we both still struggle. We both do, and I think most people do. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I feel like 
our house is less kept up now that we are not putting on appearances. Um, oh, for sure. When you're an alcoholic. But I still like to have, you know, a tidy house. Yeah. You know, and a clean, like, sanitized yeah. house. But I've given up our living room, so. Yeah, it's full of stuff. Yeah. But it is, but, it's you making know, sure that you do it on a regular basis, too. Part of recovery that is very interesting for me is, at the beginning stages, it's all about fighting the temptation to drink alcohol. It's all about cravings. And then you move past that. And it takes a while. For me, it took over a year for things to start to to return to where they should be brain chemistry-wise and physical, you know, physical things going on so that I felt healthy. I felt physically and mentally healthy. I was still dealing with emotions that I wasn't familiar with, so there was still some of that. But continue continuing down the path of recovery into what I, I often call enlightenment, and sometimes I get criticized for sounding aloof and prissy when I say the word enlightenment. But you start to learn things that you never had the bandwidth for when you were drinking. And Sherry, you never had the bandwidth for it when I was drinking because it just there was too many chaotic priorities to to overcome. And I mean, I'm talking about things like sleep. Like there's a lot of science now on how important sleep is to our waking hours, whereas I used to live by the mantra, work hard, play hard. And, you know, if I only got four hours of sleep because I was working on a project for work or I was partying, that was a bragging point. That was that was something that I would, you know, wear as a badge of courage because I could go with four hours of sleep. And, you know, part of it is age, certainly. We're getting older, but but we've also just learned and, and we are believers now that Something like eight hours of sleep is really, really important for us to function and our bodies to operate properly for the rest of the day. When you were in early recovery, I'm just going to add a little note out there for anybody who has someone in their life. You slept a lot and you were tired. It's like your body was just... Your body was like, oh, I have got to rest. I have got to rest. It was almost like you had like a cold, you know, like when you are have a cold, your body tells you you're tired and you need to rest and because sleep is restorative. I think it's like, and you know, I've heard stories of people who have come off sleep medication like Ambien and it, it's quite a transition to go to sleeping without the Ambien, but they, they say when you're taking Ambien, you're never really getting that restorative sleep. So mm-hmm. if you take Ambien for 10 years, you have had 10 years with no restorative sleep, which is terrifying, you know, to think about, but that's kind of what happens when you're drinking you 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 mm. get that seven or six hours or whatever it is of laying on your back, but the first several of those hours, the alcohol is still coursing through your body and your brain, so that's not restorative. And so you get used to these short bursts of semi-helpful sleep, and that's just how your life goes. And then when you take alcohol away, you are you're exhausted. It's like your it's like your body is saying, okay, I have to learn how to sleep now, mm-hmm. and this is way different and if this person's going to give me the chance to do this right, I'm going to take advantage of it. I don't know of a single case of someone in early sobriety that hasn't been shocked by how tired they were. They expected, because they weren't drinking, to have, have all this energy. energy. Yeah. And the opposite happens for a while. And then that goes away. And Yeah, and then you, yeah, your body gets regulated and knows how to sleep. 
Yeah. But also you just think about the mental gymnastics that your brain is playing. That is definitely tiring. Oh, absolutely. You know. Absolutely exhausting. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail the conversation. You didn't derail. So in addition to the, the sleep being something that we have come to appreciate and become enlightened on, this whole idea of self-care is one too. And and rather than scoffing at it like, oh, you know, you, you need to take a bubble bath, you big wimp. <laughs> you know, we look at self-care as being important. I'll never forget. I, I heard two things at some point in my life. One was you reach a point when you're working where your brain... Why are you laughing? I heard two things in my life at some point. <laughs> Just two. Just two things. Okay. I'm sorry. You're I'm right. sorry. <laughs> I was trying to make sure I didn't forget what the two things were. <laughs> hard. Have you ever noticed whenever I talk about things, it's always, it's two of the, here's, here's two ideas. There's, here's two suggestions. These are the most important because I can't remember up to three. Three is too many. Look through my writing. It's always two. I was thinking about that the other day. Even when I'm writing it, I can't remember three things. Even when you could have like a note. I do have notes. I have lots of notes. I have notes about two things and then I try to write a third and I can't remember what it is. Okay. So what are those two things that you've heard? Oh, Oh, now I got to remember what the two things are. I'm sorry. No. Well, one, so one was just about how if, when we just work and work and work, you got to remember my original goal out of college was I was going to work as hard as it took to make a million dollars or several million dollars, whatever it was, and retire at age 50. That was my goal. I was going to sacrifice oh age 22 to age 50 for, you know, the majesty of age 50 to probably 58 when I would have died. <laughs> <laughs> and then so that, 58 it kills over and Sherry enjoys the life insurance policy. Yeah. So that was the original plan. But some... One of, one of the two things I heard in my life was that, you know, you reach a point in, when your brain, when you're working, that your productivity is so minimal because you're so tired and you're so overworked that you'd actually be more productive if you shut it down and relaxed, took time for yourself, slept, and then started up again the next day. You would get more done. By working less. You can get more done by working less. Is that the four-minute work day or 40-minute work day? Four-hour work week. Whatever that. I think it's the four-hour work week. Whatever that was. I have not read that. but Yeah. No, I didn't hear that from that gentleman. He can can do four. Yeah. You can only do two. Well, four hours, not four things. Let's not give him that much credit. Mm. And then, you know, I, I... coach high school soccer and I also I remember someone that I really respect a college coach with a bunch of national championships that I really respect talked about how you know if you're practicing longer than 90 minutes you're wasting everyone's time because 90 minutes is kind of the capacity for people to perform and to to mentally be engaged and after that you're actually doing damage to their to the players' bodies and to their mental capacity. So well, and that's like a whole soccer game. Like so you think five days a week to well, practice. But you think you're being you're creating your these tough players. We're gonna be tough. We're gonna by you know, yeah. we're gonna go two and a half hours today and but really you're you're just you, you, there's a there's a sweet spot and mm-hmm. then it's all downhill from there. Mm-hmm. And that's the case with us as adults who are working and again, working for work or working around the house, you've gotta have that 
that downtime, that restorativeness. So we're talking a lot about this, but I hope it helps some of our listeners with the guilt they feel for self-care. Self-care is not this bonus that only rich people get. You know, you don't have to own a yacht to be able to have self-care. You could just own a dinghy. You can own a dinghy. You don't and even have to own a dinghy. And just go around. Yeah. You only have to own a bathtub. Yeah. Or... Or a nice comfy chair. A nice comfy chair. Or a wonderful place to walk. But it needs to be something that we prioritize for our own recovery. Once we're done thinking about alcohol for just self-development moving forward. And that applies to the alcoholics and the loved ones of alcoholics as well. Because I got to tell you, as much as I used to be able to sit on the couch on Sunday afternoons for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours... And drink beer after beer and watch whatever mindless television was on. I can't do that anymore. Yeah. With Number one, I feel guilty whenever I try to sit down. And number two, that's boring to me now. So I, I've had to shift what I do for relaxation and I'm still not very good at it. But I do appreciate that it's important. And it manifests... In so many different ways when we don't do that. I mean, it can make us irritable or shorter tempered, you know, on Wednesday. If it was Sunday when we were trying to relax and we didn't do a good job of it, and then Wednesday, you know, we can be irritable as a result. So it it carries with us. Like, it's just an important thing to prioritize. I don't know why I keep focusing on Sunday. I guess just for us, that would be the easiest yeah. day to relax. But obviously for other people, that's not the necessity yeah, and, of the day. Well, you and I have been discussing this. You want me to kind of, you know, chill out a little bit on Sundays. But with my other job, I'm up and ready on Sundays and yeah, working at the, the church. children's so, minister at our church. So. I mean, even though it's not full on Sunday school and I don't have to clean up rooms or anything like that now, it's still, you know, I'm still a part of the virtual program of... You know, and I've tried to eliminate some of the Sundays, but sometimes I have a question about this because this was part of our conversation. What if I have this task of something that I feel like it's going to make me feel really good to get done? Yeah, this is a good question. This is a good thing for us to talk about. And so, so for me, when I like look around the house, there are some things that I don't normally clean, right? Like, so I cleaned out the china cabinet. Just, yeah, we have multiple. I have a little bit of a dish fetish, and I've inherited them from my grandmothers. Don't forget the cow creamers. And the cow creamers. Those are spread throughout now. But I really wanted to, like, clean the glass and the glass shelves and, you know, because everything, like... And it's funny, I was looking at our wine glasses that we had on display, and I rearranged them. I'm like, I'm going to give some of these away. Like, we don't... We don't drink anymore. Like, why do I have them? They can be used for desserts or mocktails, but... So some of them I'm going to give away, not the special ones. I really like the big martini glasses we've got that are like... The green fish stems? Fishbowl size, and they've got a green stem. Oh, the martini, yeah. Yeah, they were, I thought they would be fun for, you know, like you frozen be, margaritas, because they had like a little palm or bamboo looking thing. Those are at Goodwill now, oh, so... good. I did get rid of those. But, like, that was going to, like, I know it sounds so silly, but sometimes those sort of things, that's like this extra special thing that's going to make me feel good and make me feel productive and make me feel accomplished. Like, I don't, it's so hard to explain some of the giddiness that I got out of, like, doing that and rearranging. I don't think it's hard to understand at all. But it's not self-care, is it? Well... 
because I have the same thing. I'll, I'll set my mind out on finishing a project that has no external deadline. There's nobody waiting for me to finish this project. There's no, like I want to, I want to change something on one of our websites that's bothering me. Nobody has mentioned it. No, nobody has emailed me with a question because they're confused, but I, it's just bugging me and I'm going to have to do some research to figure out how to change it. And then I'm going to, and th- that's the kind of project that I would pick up like on a Sunday afternoon and, mm-hmm. and you know, I would, I would feel that same giddy satisfaction when it's done. But it's a trade-off because if you do that, you're not getting the relaxation. This this would be the same thing as staying up late, doing something you enjoy, but then the trade-off is you don't get enough sleep. Yeah. So I I totally get it. I I think it's a matter of prioritizing. You know, when people when people say they're too busy to do something, and this happens a lot in the alcoholism recovery community, people say, "Oh, I'm too busy to go to that meeting, or I'm too busy to join this this Zoom group." I'm too busy to do the work that's required for recovery. Busy is a matter of priorities. There's no such thing as busy. Busy is just what do you think is the most important in your life? And if you think doing the thing is more important or you think, you know, being at work or playing with your children, these are all legitimate things that you can prioritize. But self-care is one of the things that always just gets the shaft if you don't prioritize self-care as one of the things that's at the top of your list that you can get giddy about because you did it, then it's going to fall by the wayside and you're never going to find time. So when you were talking about being busy, I almost said way back in the um, beginning when you're talking about the badge of honor of four to five hours of sleep or, you know, I stayed up all night, like, because you're, you know, younger and you can do that. Um, like, people act like busy is like this, oh, well, they must be very important. Yeah. They, you know, I, I learned that a long time ago. Do you know anyone who's not busy? Well, that's the thing. Like, it, busy is a state of mind. And, and if you, you're right, it's all about priorities. And then I all of a sudden just popped into my head was like, our daughter, who's a freshman in college, she really did find a, she really is a good example of a person who understands self-care. So I'm hoping this generation of, of young adults are appreciating that self-care and taking time. And I feel like there's quite a few of them. I know that... What's after millennials? Is she a millennial? I don't know. She's a millennial. <clears throat> so um, they kind of have um, a little bit more of some of the values kind of, you know, organized, right? Like, you yeah, know, taking care of themselves knows... You know, she knows that she's going to be better at taking care of others. And, you know, there's just some examples that I have seen in her that are good examples of taking care of yourself because then you are, you know, more productive and you are, and like the things that you produce are more quality versus, you know, some of her friends who didn't get good sleep. I mean, Catherine is a sleeper. She can go to sleep and yeah. that's good and she because she's an early riser so she she has learned to listen to her body and kind of pays attention to that whereas some of her friends would stay up all night trying to put you know projects together yeah so I'm really hoping this new generation of people well it, of young adults are, are I don't think this prioritizing I don't think the make. next generation finds their value simply from how much money they make or how many hours they work and that's very typical in our generation. Yeah. You know, I even remember in college. The Wall Street generation. There was right? this, 
a lot of my friends, we were all trying to get into the business. You get into school, but then we were trying to get into the business school for our junior and senior years. And half of us made it into the business school, and the other half didn't, and they went to SPIA. SPIA. School <laughs> That's of where I was, people. Environmental. SPIA. Which. I didn't you even know, try. There was a hierarchy to that. And so there we oh, are, yeah. age, age 19 or 20, learning that there's a hierarchy to this, the product the of your work. Whether And so you graduate, and then who's getting paid the most right out of college? Mm-hmm. And who works the most hours? I remember the people that went to the accounting firms, you know, they were working 80 hour weeks right out of school and they were just disposable to those firms. They would take yeah. these college kids and work them till they work quit death and three or four years and they quit and they just go get another one. Cause yeah. the work was, even though it was, you took a business school degree, it was really menial and mm-hmm. an entry level and anyone could do it. Yeah. So, so I think that we can, as old dogs here, take a little lesson for sure to that, I mean, not that, put our value of like, if we have all the dishes done, or if we have all the laundry done, we just need to know that we're important. And that's that's where it kind of lies for me, is knowing that I'm important. And, that's exactly right. And my mental health and my relaxation is just going to be so much better on everybody else. And so it helps that you don't have an alcoholic that's screaming at you about how awful you are. Yeah, or, and, or, or just being needy. Because alcoholics well, okay, are very both needy. Both of those things. But I think it's important for our listeners to know, especially ones who might have a loved one who is an alcoholic who is still drinking mm-hmm. it's important for them to know just ignore the gaslighting that crap they're telling you isn't true you aren't crazy you aren't a bitch you know and you deserve time to take care of yourself and it's for your own good it's for the good of the people that are around you and subjected to your moods mm-hmm. if you get a chance to take care of yourself no no doubt the next generations hopefully getting off to a better start than we did just because of the the lack of hierarchy that's solely based on money and power. At least I hope I hope that's the case. I hope our daughter's not unique in that regard. But even for our generation and people that are older than us, it's so hard to not feel the guilt and shame for doing the right thing for ourselves because we're so worried about other people and what people will think. You know, I want to move past self-care when we talk about why are you so ashamed? There are, you know, in an alcoholic relationship, there's plenty of shame to go around. And when we talk specifically about the non-drinker, the loved one of the alcoholic, the specific areas where they typically feel shame are, you know, they're ashamed of what their family is, what their husband maybe is. Because this isn't, and this was the case for you, right? This isn't what I planned. When I was coming of age and deciding to to try to find someone with whom to share the rest of my life, mm-hmm. I didn't picture this awful alcoholic situation. And so even if you're not the perpetrator of the awful, you're still ashamed of how it turned out, right? Yeah. Do you remember feeling that way? Yeah. I mean, because I know like for some alcoholics or some Loved ones of alcoholics, especially spouses of alcoholics, there's that idea like, I didn't get, or my parent didn't get fixed, and so I want to marry someone who's an alcoholic, like, so I can fix them, or I'm going to, you know, I want to take care and nurture somebody. I didn't look at... I don't know that they want to. They don't want to. It's like They don't get scared off by the idea of marrying Or it's like an internal thing that you don't even recognize. Subconscious. Yeah, like, so I like 
looked at you and you didn't look at any of those because I didn't want to have to take care of you. I didn't want to have to be the, you know, the one making the decisions all the time. Like I kind of did the opposite in that I was an independent person, but I also knew that I wanted this level of security in a relationship and you checked all the good things. And I think with just the alcoholic background in my family, I was able to overlook some of those weird, those one-offs, you know, like when you were really drunk or... Or that I was sprouting back hair. (laughs) Was that on the good list or the... Um, We're going to just forgo the back hair. We don't want to talk about back hair? I did make sure you didn't have any when we... That didn't come in until much later. That's good. I made sure you didn't have just a full sweater of body hair on your... (laughs) Back and front torso and trunk area. So, but no, I think that it just allowed me to like look over some of those incidences that we had when we were dating and in college that there was so much outweighed the bad but it did give me a level of like tolerance that I wasn't aware of and so then whenever you know the drinking went on or you if my family was around and you were drinking heavier it was an embarrassment and you know little snippy arguments or just the way you treated me in front of my family sometimes I know a couple incidences like they were like you know I can't believe you put up with this you know, just knowing that my mom left an alcoholic marriage. Well, and I know... So they were like, what? I can't believe you're doing letting this happen. I know that would make you angry at me, but it, it also made you ashamed made of Made me ashamed of done, my right? choice. Yeah, yeah, it made me, like, ashamed of what I had turned into or what I'm allowing to happen to me. Or I obviously, you know, didn't see the forest through the trees, sort of, like... So, so one of the layers of shame is, how did I get into this situation? And then you alluded to it before, but, you know, codependency is so much about control. And the loved one of the alcoholic who's displaying codependency, codependent tendencies, boy, that's a very clinical sentence. I feel bad about that sentence. That person is trying to fix the alcoholic too. Whether it's, as you mentioned, because they weren't able to fix their father, so they're going to try to fix their husband or... Or even if that wasn't part of their background, they're still trying to fix the alcoholic that's right there in front of them and trying to solve the problem. And there's shame that wells up because you can't fix that person. We all have to get to a point where we understand that you can't fix other people. I mean, that's one of the earliest messages we've tried to share with our kids. Don't get yourself in a situation where you think you're the savior and you're going to fix somebody. You can't fix anybody. You can only fix yourself. But that's so typical. You're ashamed of how did I get into this situation and you're also ashamed because you can't fix the person that you're in the situation with. Yeah. And then your self-esteem starts to hit, you know, lower levels because you're like, wow, I'm not even influential to the person that I'm supposed to be the most, you know, to spend the rest of my life with. So obviously I must be like, you know, just so terrible at convincing and, and showing, you know proof and evidence of of what drinking does or influence you because i remember i used to like say things like or think things like you're better than this like i don't know why you're doing this you're better than this yeah yeah and and then there's a third layer to the shame which is 
when you are in a relationship with an alcoholic, you're being gaslit or gaslighted. I really got to figure out which yeah, way to say I, that. I was hoping that you would have like Googled that or once or a thousand times between times that you'd like to use it. But you're being term. told over and over that it's your fault. You're being told that you're crazy. Everyone drinks like this. Sherry. Or I'm not drinking. I'm, I'm just, well. That's like, yeah. I'm not drinking. Yeah, that happens That's too. That's a gas. Yeah. technique. I didn't it? do that. I, you didn't do it because you, you were convincing you that me that... my drinking was normal. You were convincing me that I was the one with the alcohol problem That's because right. of my father. Yes. You know, and it was always very convenient because there was never... My father had passed away when we were in college and we first started um, kind of dating and knowing each other. So there was no, like, backup evidence, you know. Like, we couldn't just go and ask him and we didn't see his outcome. So I always felt like well, that was an easy thing for you to say. did see his outcome. You know, he passed away. Yeah. Yeah. Because he had cancer. Yeah. From. It's probably. Likely sm- from. Yes, and smoking. Drinking. Yes. And, yeah. 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 But, so, you're right. We couldn't, we couldn't go talk or interview your, your father and get his perspective. That's true. Right. But, but being told that it was your fault, that was something that I did heavily. Even even though I didn't necessarily hide that I was drinking, I did tell you that everyone drinks and you're the weirdo because you don't think drinking every day on a regular basis is normal, which you didn't think and which you're right. You ended up being right about. But at the time, you know, and I, and I, I wasn't like gaslighting you because I'm a vicious liar. I was I really believed that everything I was doing was normal when the when the majority of, I mean, I just saw the statistic not, not too long ago, 70% of Americans drink regularly. I was right. The, everybody does drink, Sherry. Everyone, everyone does drink regularly. I just wasn't right in what it was turning me into and what it was turning you into. And so you've got the shame from the, you know, how did I get myself into this? You got the shame from I can't fix this person. And you've also got the shame from being told that you're the weirdo, you're the crazy one by the person you love. That's a lot. That is a lot. That must have been awful to feel that. Well, some of the times you just don't feel it. You just react. So Yeah. I think you stuff it down. You don't really feel it. Yeah. And that's why I think recovery for us is just as important because you have to kind of wade through the things that you've, you know, shoved aside. and Absolutely. So I want to talk about what lifts that shame. What, what allows you to move past that, that, the feelings of shame that come from those, those different places. One of them, the, maybe the biggest and most important kind of initial one is understanding that you're not alone, right? Because part of the denials of a high functioning alcoholic marriage is that we're going to pretend like everything's fine. We're going to show that to the outside world, everyone in the outside world. And so by doing so, we're hiding the dysfunction. And if everybody's out there hiding the dysfunction, we don't realize how much dysfunction there is. We don't realize that we're not alone. Did you did you feel that way when when we were, you know, barely holding on by our fingernails, but for the most part people outside of our household didn't know how much I was drinking? Yeah, I yeah, cuz I mean, you were a soccer coach and 
you know, we were well liked and socialized. So I definitely felt like nobody really knows what's going on deep down. And our life and marriage and family, home life didn't represent those that I had seen when I was growing up or, you, you mean know, the alcoholic, the alcoholic experience. experience. Yeah. Like my mother and father divorced when I was very young because my mother didn't want to raise us in a home with an alcoholic father. So, um, yeah, it just didn't look like what I thought alcoholism and alcoholic spouse was. So I started to question my own belief. Like, does everybody drink that, that way and that it's okay? So what was it like when you first realized that what you were going through wasn't unique? We had Tracy on the podcast last week and she talked about when when I first came out as a high-functioning alcoholic in recovery, she reached out to you and that was her first realization that, oh my gosh, this is a common thing. Sherry's going through it too. Was you talking to Tracy the first time you realized how common it was or did you well, know before I really, that? I realized that I wasn't alone, that there would be that. I just didn't realize it would be someone I already knew that approached us. But I, I didn't at that time think about how common it was at that point yet. I think it took a while longer. So you knew you know, there maybe were people like out a couple there, you years. just didn't think you would know any of them. Yeah, and then I feel like over a couple years, like as you lived a sober life and we were, you know, talking about it more openly, it, it got to be, even because you would read me like, you know, emails you got or people would approach you like right. at our, you know, Christmas neighborhood party, like people talk to you and me and it, over the next couple of years, then I got to realize, oh, there's like an alcoholic in everybody's life. Yeah. You know, just the varying degree. And I know, like, when I compare you, and I know I shouldn't compare you, but when I compare you to some of other people still, and I hear the alcoholic side of the story, you know, it's just hard to imagine some more of the trauma that they go through with their alcoholic. Because I was like, wow, Matt never lied to me, or Matt never, you know, went missing for days. But it's still, it still hurts, and it's still embarrassing. Did it make you less ashamed though? Yeah, it made me less ashamed. And honestly, I know this sounds really kind of silly, but it makes me even more proud that I was right knowing that you were better than going down a terrible road and that you did recover and now you're doing this. So it makes me very proud of the openness and the recovery that we've gone through as a couple. Well, the openness is the key to recovery both for the alcoholic and the loved one. I'm, I firmly believe that for about a hundred reasons. But certainly one of them is when you're open about it and you realize there's other people going through it, the shame starts to lift. I think another thing that helps not not just me as the alcoholic to remove some of the shame that I felt, but certainly helps you as the loved one of the alcoholic is to to blame the alcohol for the dysfunction. So rather than looking at these terrible behaviors, I mean, here's a great example. When I would get drunk and call you names, for a long time you believed that alcohol is a truth serum and that the names I was calling you was how I really felt 
and that the alcohol just let it out. And when I was sober, I was able to suppress those true feelings of how awful you were. Do you remember feeling that way? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the more we learned about alcohol and the disease of alcoholism and how it changes your brain, and then the longer we got into sobriety, where I didn't have any temptation to call you those names, because that isn't how I really felt about you, you were more you know, able to realize that the alcohol isn't just a truth serum. The alcohol is like, is where the evil is. The alcohol is the bad thing. Mm-hmm. I wasn't necessarily the bad thing. And the alcohol let freed me up, you know, took my chains off. The alcohol was the cause of those nasty thoughts and those nasty things that I said. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, <laughs> so by being able to blame the alcohol for the dysfunction, that's got to, you know, lift more, more of that shame of how did I get myself into this? Why am I married to this awful person? Mm-hmm. And what's my out strategy? Instead of being ashamed like that, you can think, oh, this guy is an okay guy. And it was the, the poison that was causing the turmoil. Yeah. I, I know I definitely used to think that whenever you would be drinking, whether it was like all these upswings of emotion, whether it be anger or sadness or... You would go on rants about something if it happened political or, you know, something related to sports. I felt like, you know, even those outbursts of emotions, whatever kind they were, was like, wow, he's like really just barely, you know, like I would think, oh gosh, he can barely make it through the day with without having an emotional outburst. And so he must really have to suppress who he is, but really it was the alcohol that was just making you have the emotional outburst yeah. and you were very I, thought, I guess a good way to describe it is I thought you were off kilter that you were uneven yeah. that you were unstable and you were because of alcohol yeah. now you're like really solid and stable I'm on kilter you're on whatever kilter whatever kilter is yeah what is that a, like a nautical term where does that come from kilter I thought that was about I don't know well if anybody wants, are on if anybody kilter. wants to google it because we you know we will never google yeah. it ourselves to figure it out yeah let us know how to say um gas lighted or gas lit and let us know what kilter Looking is for those in the comments that would be great um yeah so i thought you were emotionally unstable and emotionally immature yeah even though you held this family you know you were a high-functioning alcoholic you're i just thought wow he's gonna end up like there must be lunacy running in his family. Well, I was emotionally immature, but I wasn't, you know, uh, dramatic and flying off the handle about everything. Yeah. It was the alcohol that was creating that. Yeah, behavior. dramatic. That's a good way to. Put dramatic. It. Yes. You were. There's a word that we know how to use, and we know what it means. Yes, that was a very dramatic person. Yes. When he was drinking, so I did appreciate the stability. And the less dramatic. That came with long-term sobriety? Yeah. Yeah, blaming the alcohol for the dysfunction is really, really important. It's really important. This person that you're, as in our case, married to, that's that's calling you all these names, that's not not who they really are. That's who the alcohol really is. And getting that out of the situation for a long period of time, a year plus will reveal who that person really is. The other thing that I think lifts the shame of being in an alcoholic relationship is getting involved. 
and that can be in a variety of ways. Certainly for the the people on your side of the street, Sherry, Al-Anon is the thing that they most know. You can go to Al-Anon and get help. We uh, have learned a lot about Al-Anon. We've, neither of us have ever actually been to a meeting, but we've worked with so many people that have. that We've worked a lot about, or we've learned a lot about Al-Anon, and we are not Al-Anon haters. If you can find a group, an Al-Anon group that feels comfortable and the people in the group have empathy and you, you enjoy that, then go get it. That's one way to get involved. We mentioned earlier our, our Echoes of Recovery program is another way to get involved with people that are in the same situation. Writing, writing about your experiences and sharing that, whether that's with a tight inner circle or sharing it publicly, just writing and, and kind of getting the emotions out. That is a, and, and sharing what those emotions mean with other people who, who might be suffering as well. That's a way to get involved you know, volunteering, it doesn't even have to be in the addiction recovery community. You, you can volunteer to help with people that are food insecure or with homelessness. You know, all these afflictions are related. Mm-hmm. Addiction is related to all of these things. So by getting involved, it's just a way to heal. It's a way to move past the shame. It's a way to feel good about yourself. It's a, it's a way to know that you understand what alcoholism is, you know that it's not your fault. You know that you didn't cause it. You know you can't fix it, but you're gonna you're gonna be involved in the solution in one way or the other. So the getting involved piece is just hugely important. I mean, Sherry, what what this podcast has done for you is it's miraculous. You you were very reluctant to talk about the details of our personal life when when I first kind of dragged you over to this microphone. You always wanted to talk about sex. Well, that's true. But but it has become a real benefit for you to to hear the feedback from the people that say, "Oh, you're telling my story." When you when you cry, Sherry, I'm crying right along there with you. Talk just real briefly about how that has made you feel. You You've gotten a lot from that, haven't you? Yeah. I I definitely feel like more connected and that I am not alone and that our story is not unique or rare, that it's actually very common. It, it makes me sad. Yeah. That it is so common. Yeah. And that that alcoholism has just is just working to destroy relationships. Um so I think it's made me not only more confident in talking about it um, with people that I share that commonality with, but also talking about it to people that I know that still are like not heavy, you know, like, you know, a glass of wine every night or two glasses of wine every night kind of people, you know, like yeah. when they ask me, well, now that Matt doesn't drink and you're involved, like, do you drink? And like, I just, I'm okay with saying, yeah, no, like, I, I don't. I just don't see any reason to slowly poison myself. I don't, you know. So I have more confidence in saying that. And I don't feel like I'm, like, throwing it back in their face. And I try to be very respectful. But I just do state my opinion. They ask and I say, you know, it's like slowly poisoning yourself. And what's the benefit of, of one glass of red wine? Revesterol? Well, you can get that in grape juice, you know. Well, I think... So it's confidence is. I'm glad you used that word. Confidence is the opposite of shame, isn't it? 
Yeah, I suppose. In, in, in a way. In a way. You'd have to twist it just a little. But confidence is basically the opposite of shame. And so you've got to do all these things that we talked about to move past the shame, get that lifted out of your life. And then you have the confidence to speak your truth and not care what anybody thinks about it. Yeah. And, 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 and all these people... You. That you're connected to that are supporting you and saying, hey, your story is my story. When you cry, I cry. Um, that's just got to make you feel like I'm not alone. This is common. It's everywhere. And yeah. I, when I speak, I to some degree speak for people that are in my right similar situation. Yeah, that's where I guess I, when I was mentioning earlier about feeling proud about the work that has happened yeah. with you being open about your addiction and recovery... Um, kind of makes me feel like I can speak for those people that don't have someone that wants to be that open about it and that they're still kind of talking about it quietly but knowing that I'm representative of a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people. Millions of people. Sadly. Sadly. Let's let's finish up by talking about the kids, kids in general, not just our kids. Because... You, you talked a little bit about the generational differences with like what our daughter prioritizes. I think that's great. But I also think it's really important for us to be as transparent as possible when communicating with our kids about what has happened in an alcoholic relationship. And I think that's part of us moving past our own shame. And that might seem counterintuitive. It's embarrassing to sit your kids down and explain, hey, you know, dad's an alcoholic and this is what we've suffered through because it paints, it painted me in a really bad light when we had that conversation with our kids for the first time. But in the long run, it removes the shame because our, our kids, you know, they don't have a parent, one parent or both parents to blame for the dysfunction that was taking place in our family earlier in their life when they were younger. They know to blame the alcohol too. So just like you had to learn and I had to learn that the alcohol is the problem. It's not It's not that really I'm an evil person and I'm just able to suppress those notions when I'm sober. You learned that the alcohol was doing the damage. The kids have learned that too. So they can think back to times that weren't great in the family and they can pin that firmly on the alcohol instead of thinking gosh dad was in a bad mood that day or Mm -hmm. gosh mom was in a bad mood because of what dad being in a bad mood or whatever yeah yeah so when we don't talk to our kids about what happens and you know i think this carries through with divorce too we have a lot of people that we are very familiar with now that the they weren't able to the relationship wasn't able to survive the alcoholism and they made good, stable, healthy, the right decision for them to get out of the relationship and for the health of themselves and for their children. But then if they don't talk to the children about what happened, the children are going to spend, they're going to be adults. They're going to be in their 40s going, why did my mom divorce my dad? Why did my mom break up the family? Mm-hmm. And that's a terrible position to put the the children in. Yeah, They need to understand that alcohol is a poison alcoholism is a disease and that that is what broke up the family not the dad that drank not the mom that was a bitch but that the alcohol is what caused the problem and broke up the family yeah 
I I think that like when our kids, I mean, they definitely knew the older ones, especially knew something was going on. And towards the end of your drinking career, I I think that we all kind of understood that the beer that you were drinking was causing your behavior. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't think I ever remember telling our kids, oh, your dad is drunk, so he's acting like a jerk. I would say, your dad is drinking and it's not making him in a good mood. I stopped kind of protecting you a little bit, I think out of just my own preservation, really, because I thought, I don't want to look like I'm just a sad mother all the time. Sure. And I wanted to give reason for my sadness to them and be able to name it instead of them just having questions. So I know that a lot of people try to protect their spouse from even the kids and they try to protect the kids. But when your kids are like in, you know, mid to late elementary school, they understand like something is not right. Yeah. And so I don't remember ever saying, you know, your dad is drunk but I remember saying your dad's had too many yeah beers or something like that yeah um but I, and I feel like because I didn't know where it was going to end up quite right. honestly I, I don't think like I want to I don't think you seat. did anything wrong in the moment with the way you would communicate I just think when it is over mm-hmm. and whatever decision has been made whether that's sobriety and the relationship's going to try to make it or that's you know, you have to separate yourself from the relationship and divorce takes place. I just think the kids are owed the truth because if you don't give them the truth, then they're going to wonder and they're going to be, like I said, in their mid forties, wondering what they did to cause the relationship to break up or, or, or picking sides on which parent to blame. Yeah. They need to understand that the alcohol is to blame. Yeah. Yeah. It's better for everybody. Better health-wise for everybody involved. It's hard. It's hard to it's so hard. tell your child that. It's so hard. Also, it's hard to admit things like, you know, your dad's drinking and it's making me upset. And why it makes you upset? Because they think, oh, he's just drinking a beer. You know, why is that upsetting to her? But, you know, they don't know all the behavior that goes on along with that a lot of times. So kind of planting the seed when they're a little bit younger, like I said, because I didn't know where our relationship was going to end up. Right. You know, and I know a lot of people are like, well, I'll wait until the kids are out of the house and then we'll separate or try to, and then, you know, and then there are adult, young adult kids that are like, what happened? Yeah. You know? So. Yeah, the transparency is a key to removing the shame. So if, if, if you're in an alcoholic relationship and you feel a lot of shame associated with it, you are not alone. That is the natural reaction. We've just heard it time and time and time again at this point. And it takes effort to move past it. You got to understand that you're not alone, that it's one of the most common things there is out there. I mean, alcoholism is more common than cancer. So being in an alcoholic relationship is very common and you got to learn to blame alcohol for the disease or for the dysfunction pardon me you got to learn to blame alcohol for the dysfunction you got to get involved somehow you got to get connection in your life and you got to be if there are kids involved you got to be transparent there and if you can do all those things you can start to move past the feeling of being ashamed 
because there's nothing to be ashamed about when you're the loved one of an alcoholic. Thanks for listening to us talk this through. These are just some things that have been on our mind and and in in our community that we communicate with. And so we want to share our experiences and our thoughts on them. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Untoxicated Podcast.